All right, well, once again, good morning. Can I uh, have you turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 23? Now, if you knew this, we are working our way through the Gospel of Matthew on Sunday morning here at Calvary. And as we come to Matthew 23, we find ourselves in the last week of Jesus' life before his crucifixion. The week began with Palm Sunday, the day the Lord rode into Jerusalem presenting himself to the nation as their Messiah and King. Of course, the religious leaders rejected him and have spent the last few days posing a series of trick questions to Jesus in the hopes that they could, you know, trap him into saying something they could use against him to then have him arrested and crucified. And as we have seen, every time they tried to trap the Lord uh, with one of these trick questions, he answered them with divine wisdom, frustrating them. Until last week, we studied how that he finally asked them a question that completely stumped them. And we read to close out chapter 22, verse 46. And no one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day on did anyone dare question him anymore. Now, chapter 23 is simply a continuation, basically. And Jesus now turns to the multitudes and his own disciples and begin to condemn the hypocrisy of the scribes and the Pharisees. Don't forget, these men were the spiritual leaders in Israel. They were revered as very godly, holy, and pious men. In fact, the Jews had a saying back then that if only two people made it into heaven, one would be a scribe and the other would be a Pharisee. That's how highly esteemed these men were and uh, how uh, pious and holy that uh, the average Jew believed them to be. And so when Jesus begins to warn the multitudes about not following the hypocrisy of these men, I'm sure that many were taken back. They were taken back because, wow, uh, Jesus is coming against basically their spiritual heroes. But after he warns the multitudes to be aware of the hypocrisy of these so-called spiritual men, starting in verse 13, he turns to the Pharisees and scribes directly. They're still standing there, okay? Uh, and he begins to condemn them to their faces for their hypocrisy. In fact, seven times in this chapter, he calls them hypocrites. The word hypocrite comes from the Greek word that literally means mask wearer. Mask wearer. And it came out of the theater, basically. In those days, uh, when actors were up on stage uh, playing a part, they would often have, they would always have a mask on a stick, which they would hold up to their faces. Of course, these masks had very pronounced smiles or very exaggerated frowns so that everybody knew who the good guys were and the villains were. Well, over time, the word came to mean putting on an act and pretending to be something you were not. Hypocrite. Now, before we get into the chapter, we do need to remember that not all the Pharisees were hypocrites. Even though the word Pharisee has come in our uh, culture to mean hypocrite, synonymous with hypocrisy, uh, not all the Pharisees were hypocrites. For the most part, these were middle-class guys, right? The Sadducees, they were the upper crust. They were the uh, part of the aristocracy. But the Pharisees were the working stiffs, basically. Some of them owned businesses. Uh, Saul of Tarsus, before he became Paul the Apostle, just a tradesman, just worked with his hands, making tents and so on. So most of these guys were average, ordinary, blue-collar guys, basically. And a lot of them were very sincere in their desire to uh, live for God by staying separate from the world, which in fact is what the word Pharisee means. Separated one. Separated one. A person who wanted to separate 
themselves from the corruption of the world to live a life of consecration to God. Nothing wrong with that. Nothing wrong with that. And many of them were very sincere. We know Nicodemus was a Pharisee. He was a sincere guy. We know he came to Jesus uh, one evening and said, you know, a group of us. So there's a group of Pharisees that he represented. A group of us have come to believe that you are the Messiah. So he was a good man. There was others like him. We know that Joseph of Arimathea, also an unnamed man mentioned in Mark 12, 32 to 34, and even Saul of Tarsus before he got saved. These were all sincere Pharisees who, again, desired to honor God by living separated lives from the world. However, the vast majority of Pharisees were hypocrites, and they used their religion to garner prestige and recognition from men while, listen, increasing their own personal wealth. And we'll see how that worked out, uh, how that worked as we progress through this chapter, because Jesus denounces them for being so materialistic and using religion to line their pockets with, of course, that doesn't happen today, but we just want to study this from going back to, we don't see that in the church at all, people using religion to line their pockets, but you know, back then it was a problem. Anyways, the chapter falls into two main parts. Jesus instructs the multitudes, verses 1 to 12, and then Jesus indicts the scribes and Pharisees, verses 13 through 36. Now, verses 37 to 39 form more of a transition or actually an introduction to chapter 24. So when we get to those verses, we'll connect them with chapter 24 and look at them together because they kind of go together, all right? But first of all, Let's look at the first 12 verses uh, today, and we'll, I don't want to scare you, okay? Uh, we'll be here, you know, 12 hours if we do the whole chapter, knowing me. But uh, this morning, just the first 12 verses, Jesus instructs the multitudes and his own disciples, basically. We read in verses 1 and 2, And Jesus spoke to the multitudes and to his disciples, saying, The scribes and Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. Now let me stop there. First of all, the literal translation of verse 2 is actually the scribes and Pharisees have seated themselves in Moses' seat. Now, Moses, of course, was the great lawgiver of Israel. In fact, it was Moses to whom God gave the law. Now, Moses became a mediator. God gave the law to Moses, who then gave it to the children of Israel. But in their minds, it was so connected to Moses. They knew it was God's law. Don't get me wrong. But it was so connected to Moses, they actually referred to it as the law of Moses. Or in other words, as the law given to us through Moses. But Moses, not only was the one that the law came through, uh, he was also the one, listen, that God appointed to be the spiritual leader and supreme judge over the nation at that time. In fact, the people would come to him all day long with their law issues, all right? And he would serve up justice. Well, it was really uh, too much for one man to bear. And so his father-in-law, Jethro, suggested he take 70 guys, uh, men of wisdom and character and so on, and let the people bring their, their issues to these 70 men. And then you, you're the Supreme Court, Moses, we would say. All right, you be the Supreme Court. You be the guy that when nobody else can answer a problem or give judgment on a particular issue because it's so difficult you become then the one that they go to as the final authority. So when Jesus tells the crowd and his disciples that the scribes and Pharisees have seated themselves in Moses' seat, he was saying that they have taken upon themselves authority that God had not given them. In other words, 
They had appointed themselves to be the spiritual leaders and supreme judges over the nation, pronouncing condemnation, passing sentence upon everyone who didn't live up to the law the way they had prescribed. So now they were the authority, okay? Move over, Moses. We'll take over from here. And uh, people need to come to us. Get our wisdom, okay? We'll make the judgments as to who's uh, keeping the law and who is not and so on. And so we read in verse 3, Therefore, whatever, Jesus said, whatever they tell you to observe, that observe and do. But do not do according to their works, for they say and do not do. In other words, Jesus is telling the multitudes that they were to obey whatever the scribes and Pharisees taught when they taught from the word of God. When they teach you from the word, God's word, the law, you keep it, you obey it, etc., but Jesus is saying, but the people were not to obey their traditions and their man-made rules. And certainly, they were not to follow their example. The example described in the Pharisees who actually told people how to live while they themselves lived contrary. They were real famous at teaching everybody else how to live. Oh, here's what you should do. Here's how you need to live. They weren't doing it themselves, although they gave the impression that they were. So again, Jesus was coming against their hypocrisy. He said in verse 4, for they bind heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on men's shoulders, but they themselves will not move them with one of their fingers. In saying these words, I believe the Lord is drawing from something they were all familiar with. And that was putting a heavy load on, we'll say, a camel or a donkey, you know. And you can imagine back then, when you had a lot of stuff to move somewhere, you didn't want to make two trips. So often they would overload the animal you know, to the point where the poor thing was so loaded down with this burden, it could barely walk. And of course, the owner walked alongside of it, carrying nothing himself, all right? But, you know, uh, screaming at the animal, striking the animal if it began to stumble or buckle under the weight that had been laid upon it. And Jesus is saying, you know, you Pharisees and scribes, you're treating the people of Israel that same way. See, they piled on the people heavy loads of religious rituals, regulations, rules that were impossible to carry, unbearable burdens. And to make matters worse than they stood by, and they condemned the people for stumbling, you know, under the weight of all these re regulations and rules. Well, they themselves didn't live that way. Oh, they gave people the impression they did, but Jesus knew they were hypocrites. You know, here they're laying all these religious rituals, and you should study some of the things that they came up with. I mean, they took the Sabbath, just one thing, you shall keep the Sabbath holy, right? Simple command. And they came up with pages and pages and pages of things you could not do on the Sabbath if you were going to keep it holy. I mean, just so many rules and, and things. You, nobody could even memorize them all, let alone live those things. And, you know, the spirit of the scribes and the Pharisees are still around today. Because, again, many Christian churches are extremely legalistic. Extremely legalistic. And their idea of holiness is to march out this list of prohibitions. And depending on the church, the list gets pretty lengthy. Of all the things that people can't do if they're going to please God and live holy lives. Forgetting completely that God's looking at the heart. All right? But that's legalist for you. Legalists are always hypocrites. They go around telling everybody else how to live in the smallest detail, but they themselves don't practice a tenth 
of what they demand of others. So verse 5, we read, But all their works, Jesus said, they do to be seen by men. They make their phylacteries broad and enlarge the borders of their garments. Now, the beginning part of verse 5 sums up the core motivation for all that the scribes and Pharisees did. Jesus said it was all done to be seen by men. To be seen by men. In other words, the scribes and the Pharisees were not spiritual men. Listen, they were showmen. Showmen. Again, putting on quite a performance. They deserved some kind of an Academy Award for their performance back then. I mean, it was all a show, though. Again, hypocrisy. It was all designed to make people think they, they were something they weren't. What was that? <laughs> Sincere and holy men of God. But they were not. They were not. And how did they go about this? How, what was, how did they give people such an impression that they were so holy and righteous? Well, a couple of things they did that Jesus points out was they broadened their phylacteries and the hems of their garments. First of all, a phylactery was a small leather box made out of the skins of clean animals. And um, they would tie this leather box on their forehead and to their left forearm during their prayer times. And into this box went four scriptures, okay, four scriptures, Exodus 13, 1 to 10, Exodus 13, 11 to 16, Deuteronomy 6, verses 4 to 9, and Deuteronomy 11, verses 13 to 21. Literally, binding God's word in these phylacteries on their heads. Why did they do that? Well, because they took God's command in Deuteronomy 6, verse 8, and 11, verse 18, literally where God commanded his people to bind his law, listen now, I'm quoting the Old Testament, as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. Now, of course, God wasn't speaking literally there. It's, so, it's a lot easier to take Scripture on paper and somehow put it in something to tie it to your head, binding it between your eyes, or you know, strapping it to your arm or your hand, Binding into your hand. Look at, oh, I'm really holy. I'm keeping the law, you know. What God was saying is, look, I want my word to be bound in your brain so that it governs the way you think. Binding it to your hands. All that you do should be consistent with what I have said in my word, in my law. That was the idea. These, These laws were basically to deal with the heart issues. But the scribes and Pharisees took it literally and... If they really wanted to look pious, they would make their phylacteries broad or enlarge them. Now, a normal phylactery, if you can picture this in your mind's eye, a normal phylactery was about the size of the outer box of a ring box. You know how gals have gotten rings, hopefully from your husbands or boyfriends, right? And uh, they come in a little cardboard box, take the lid off, and inside there's that velvet little box you open up their rings inside that's about how big a normal phylactery was all right not very big if you wanted to look really pious and spiritual which the pharisees and scribes always wanted to do you would make a larger phylactery can you imagine a kleenex box (laughs) hanging off your head there okay you know big thing on your forearm you know and you're walking around with this thing on your head and people are going whoa wow is that guy spiritual look at that size of that phylactery But that wasn't all. They weren't done yet. They also enlarged the borders of their garments, we read in verse 5. Actually, this meant that they increased the size of their tassels on the hems of their garments 
as a show of piety. God had said in his law, Numbers, I'll just read it to you, Numbers 15, verses 38 to 40. Here's what God said. He says, speak to the children of Israel. Tell them to make tassels on the corners of their garments throughout their generations and to put a blue thread in the tassels of the corners. And you shall have the tassel that you may look upon it and remember and do all my commandments and be holy for your God. Now, since the Jews don't wear robes today with the tassels on the bottoms, you'll find that their prayer shawls contain tassels because they're trying to continue with this thing. But the idea was every time you looked at your robe, the bottom of your robe, there were these tassels sewn on. And they were to remind you that you were to live a holy life, keep God's commandments, and thus, you know, honor him with your life. All right? Well, here again, the scribes and the Pharisees decided that to really show people how pious they were, they would wear very large tassels, okay, on the bottoms of their robes. And so here again, it was all a show, right? It was all about outward things. You see these guys walking around, giant phylacteries off, hanging off their heads and arms and giant tassels on the bottoms of their robes. And they were saying to people, look at us. See, we really take God's word seriously. We really take a holy life seriously. Look how big our phylacteries and tassels are. Well, Jesus continued to instruct the multitudes not to follow the example of the scribes and Pharisees in verse 6 when he said, they love the best places at feasts and the best seats in the synagogues, greetings in the marketplaces, and to be called by men, Rabbi, Rabbi. They loved the best places at feasts, or banquets is the idea, which meant they loved to be seated at the head table, where all the guests of honor were seated, along with the host. They loved the best seats in the synagogues. These were the seats up front, facing the congregation, usually on a raised platform, so they were sitting up, looking, you know, down at the congregation. And you see, in those days, visiting rabbis and other religious dignitaries that visited a synagogue were often asked to sit up front so they could maybe read a scripture or give a little uh, message. And boy, the Pharisees and scribes loved to be asked to sit up front and to participate in the service. They also loved the greetings in the marketplaces and to be called by men, rabbi, rabbi. You have to understand something. The term or the title rabbi back then carried as much respect as the term doctor does in our culture. I mean, when somebody called you rabbi back then, that was a term of great respect. All right. It really was. Wow. You were being singled out as someone really special. In fact, back then to call a man rabbi was equivalent to calling him supreme one, most knowledgeable one or even great one. He said in verse 8, But you do not be called rabbi, for one is your teacher, the Christ, and you are all brethren. This is interesting to me, because the church is definitely not free from this uh, either, the uh, desire to have titles. All right, Jesus forbid his disciples from using the title rabbi, because he said, you know, you're equal with all your Jewish brethren. All your fellow Jewish men, you're all equal, all right? And I don't want you guys elevating yourselves above anybody else because rabbi means great one, supreme one, superior one, and you're not. God has called you for a ministry. That doesn't mean you're superior to anybody else or you're greater in the eyes of God than anyone else. 
Jesus Christ does not want us. Titles just mess with our heads, don't they? they? They feed our egos. They make us think that we're better than other people. And we're not. He says, look, Jesus said that uh, you're all equal and, and with each other. And only one deserves to be called supreme teacher. And that's me, Jesus said, the Christ. But again, many in the church today covet titles like doctor or apostle, bishop, cardinal. Uh, several years ago, uh, some guys were listening to our radio program uh, in a church in Chicago. And they were doing a little uh, one-day conference for fathers and sons. And they uh, called and asked if I wouldn't mind coming out doing a teaching. So I went out there and I, I met the, the pastor who had taken upon himself the title apostle. Now, in a lot of these churches, guys call themselves apostles because they plant churches, and so they see that as the work of an apostle. I personally believe apostles with a capital A have passed off the scene. They were given by God to lay the foundation of the church. You know, they were given direct revelation by God, which became our New Testament. When that was completed, we didn't need apostles any longer. All right? That's my view, according to Ephesians 2.20. But uh, he had taken the title Apostle, and so I gave my teaching, and apparently he liked it, because he came up afterwards and said, what's your title? I said, uh, uh, Pastor. He goes, just a pastor? You're not an Apostle or Bishop? I said, well, no, I'm just a pastor, but if you prefer, you can call me Bishop Ballmeyer. <laughs> no, I didn't say that. I thought it. No, I, I didn't even think it. No. But, but, you know, titles have a way of puffing up our ego, don't they? They have a way of making us feel like we're kind of superior to others. Jesus didn't want that. You know, we're, we're just servants of God, all right? I mean, look, just because God has called me to be a pastor doesn't mean that I'm better than you or I'm, I'm more spiritual than you are necessarily. It doesn't mean that I have a closer in with God than you do, that God listens to my prayers first before I listen to yours. Look, <laughs> I know what Paul said about this. When God chooses us to be in ministry, what did he say? He chooses, God chooses the weak, the foolish, the base, the nobodies. Okay? I don't know, humble us pretty good. All right? <laughs> Instead of puffing us up, here's what God said. You know, we think that, Lord, you know, why did you choose me? Because I'm really special? <laughs> oh, boy, no, that's not why I chose you. You know? I mean, I chose you because you were the biggest loser in the block. And I figured I'm going <laughs> to... The more the loser, the greater I get the glory. All right, well, thanks, Lord. I, just so I know that going in, all right? But, but the idea is that God does not want us to be, you know, all preoccupied with titles, all right? Uh, he even goes on to say in verse 9, he said, Don't call anyone on earth your father, for one is your father who is in heaven. Now, listen. Here, Jesus is not forbidding us from calling our biological father's father. What he is doing is forbidding us from calling a spiritual leader on earth father. And this gets again back into the, uh, into the culture of their time. The, uh, the Sanhedrin, the Jewish high council. Uh, these men loved to be called father because the term spoke of spiritual superiority and even, listen, suggested them being a source of spiritual life. And only Jesus is the source of spiritual life. That's why Jesus said, don't even call an earthly spiritual leader your father. Now, I grew up in the Roman Catholic Church, but it's not just the Catholics. There's some mainline Protestant denominations 
who will actually uh, refer to their clergy as father. And Jesus Christ told us here that's something God did not want us to do. We have one father, and that is God the Father in heaven. We are not to call any man, uh, any spiritual leader, our father. Even the titles abbot and pope come from the idea of father. And Jesus, we weren't to do that. He said in verse 10, And do not be called teachers, for one is your teacher, the Christ. Now, the third title that Jesus forbids was teacher, which means guide, instructor, or leader. And this is not the same word translated teacher in verse 8. It's a different Greek word, and this word, that word didn't mean teacher in the classic sense. But this one means one who goes before as a guide. One who goes before as a guide. Now, later on in this chapter, he will condemn the Pharisees and scribes by calling them blind guides. Blind guides. Because he's picking up on what he's saying here in verse 10. What's the idea? Well, perhaps a modern equivalent would be authority. Authority. Don't call anyone a spiritual leader. Don't call them the authority. The authority. Look, no man has ultimate authority when it comes to God's word and interpreting God's word. Again, I grew up in the Roman Catholic Church, and we were taught we were not worthy to read the Bible and interpret it for ourselves. We had to look to the magisterium which were the, the, the Roman Catholic hierarchy. They would interpret the Bible. They would tell us what it means. Now, I don't know about you, but my Bible says, when the Spirit of God, Jesus, said comes, He'll lead you into all truth. He'll lead you into all truth. 1 John 2, 27, John says, you don't have need of any man to teach you anything. The Spirit of God will teach you everything you need to know. That doesn't mean that we don't thank God for godly leaders and teachers. It's just that no man has the right to say, Look it, you don't worry about what the Bible says. Don't try to, you come to me. I'll tell you what the Bible says. And that's what really spurred the Reformation on. Where people got tired of being in bondage to those who could only read the scriptures because it was in their a language they knew like Latin. And the common folk couldn't read the scriptures. So that meant that they had to depend on, uh, on uh, spiritual leaders that often were corrupt to tell them what God was saying. And so when the Reformation took place, and many of these guys who spearheaded the Reformation were Roman Catholics, but they saw the hypocrisy. They saw uh, how the word of God was being used against the people to keep them enslaved to the church. And so they purposed, one of the things they were going to do for the Reformation was to teach people how to read the scriptures. So So literacy was very big in the Reformation. And they built Bible schools and seminaries and universities to teach people how to read scripture and how to interpret it because they did they wanted every person to be able to read the scriptures themselves because isn't that biblical where in the scriptures does it say that i'm dependent upon another human being to interpret god's word for me they're the authority that's what the this idea of of teacher here guide instructor uh leader the 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 idea in our vernacular would be authority they were the authority Only they knew what God really intended. And that's what Jesus is saying here. Look, a true spiritual leader directs, listen, directs people into a closer walk, a closer fellowship with Jesus. They never seek to take the place of Jesus in a person's life, to lord it over them, or to basically tell them, look, you're not, you you come to me. This is the famous with the cults. 
you know, I'm closer to God than you are. All right, God's appointed me uh, his leader. I'm closer to God than you. You come to me with your problems, and I'll tell you what God says. That is something Jesus condemned flat out, flat out. And so we see in verse 11, Jesus said, But he who is greatest among you shall be your servant. And whoever exalts himself will be humble. He who humbles himself will be exalted. Greatness, well, a lot of people interpret greatness or define greatness as, you know, how fancy is your title? How many people do you have under you? Well, God's idea of greatness is completely opposite that. In fact, turn to Matthew 20, a section we've already studied, but let me just read to you from Matthew 20, starting in verse 25, because Jesus elaborates uh, along these lines. See, what was going on here? What led to this teaching? Well, the disciples kept arguing among themselves who was going to be the greatest in the kingdom. Who was going to have the biggest title, greatest position of authority? And they were missing the whole point of what Jesus had been teaching and exemplifying. And so he spells it out for them one more time in very clear detail. He called them to himself and said, You know... The rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them. In other words, pagans want to, you know, have big titles and, and, and be over a lot of people. It makes them feel important. And those who exercise great authority over them. Verse 26, yet it shall not be so among you. For whoever desires to become great among you, let him be your servant. And whoever desires to be first among you, let him be your slave, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life a ransom for many. Now, Jesus Christ kept trying to drive home to these men that greatness in the eyes of God was measured not by how high you, you climb, but by how low you descend. In other words, it's all about putting others above yourself. Well, he taught them that in chapter 20. He teaches that lesson again in the upper room when they were having the same argument by washing their feet, the lowliest task a servant could do. And then the supreme example of being a servant was when he went to the cross the next day and died for all of us, serving us, the innocent dying for the guilty. But turn to 1 Peter 5. I'll read you one more scripture, then we'll close. In 1 Peter 5, Peter says something we really need to understand along these lines as well. He said, starting in verse 1, he said, The elders who are among you, I exhort. Verse 2, shepherd the flock of God. He's talking to pastors now. And he's telling them to shepherd the flock of God, which is among you, serving as overseers, not by compulsion, but willingly. You know, don't, don't do it because somebody's forcing you to do it. If you're going to be a pastor, do it because you know that's what God wants and you want to serve God. Don't do it for, for dishonest gain, Peter said, but eagerly. Don't get in the ministry to make a buck. Verse 3, nor as being lords over those entrusted to you. Not as being lords over those entrusted to you. Do you realize that there is a movement in the church that's been around for years called the shepherding movement? Now, they don't call themselves that, but we call them that looking in from the outside. These are leaders, primarily pastors, that have taken upon themselves authority that God has not given to them, like the Pharisees and scribes did, where they have taken it upon themselves to basically be the Lord 
of a person's life instead of letting the Lord Jesus Christ be Lord of a person's life. How does it look? Well, in these churches, and it depends how strong a church is into this, but in some of the more extreme examples of this, uh, if you belong to a church like this, the pastor or the pastors are really your lords. You can't get a job. You can't take a job, I should say. You can't uh, choose a spouse. You can't, you can't decide where you're going to live until you first run up by the pastors and get their okay. They literally have taken the place, usurped the place of Jesus in the lives of these people. And Peter says, look, you are servants. You're not lords over the flock. Your job is to take them by the hand and lead them to the good shepherd every day. So they're dependent on Jesus for their lives and their guidance and so on. Not us. You, it's your job, Peter says as pastors, be examples for the flock. Examples. And when the chief shepherd appears, verse 4, you will receive the crown of glory that does not fade away. We are to be examples, all right, of those that God has entrusted into our care. Very important, okay, that we understand that, look, we are not a special class of people elevated above everybody else. We're just to be examples to the flock. Look, as we close, religious hypocrisy is a real problem among clergy in the church of Jesus Christ across this country. And I'm talking about the whole church. Everyone who calls himself a Christian church, you know, Christian church, I'm lumping denominations and independent churches all together. But if you look at the church, uh, it's not just in America, but if you look at the church in America, you see a lot of hypocrisy um, within the clergy. But it's not just the clergy, is it? You know, we can all put the mask to our face when we come to church, put on the facade, right? We can all be mask wearers. We can all play the hypocrite to some degree or another. The Bible says, humble yourselves. Confess your sins to one another. Don't present this like I'm Superman or Superwoman in front that nothing ever faces me and praise God no matter what happens, you know, I'm always just right there with the Lord. Hey, look, if that's where you're really coming from, God bless you. But, you know, if you're not that way, if you're hurting, if you're struggling, don't come to church and put the mask in and say, hey, everything's great. Humble yourself. Confess your sins to each other. Ask for prayer. Take the mask off, all right? Don't play a part. Be real. God wants us to be real. Our supreme example is, of course, the Lord Jesus himself, who right here tells leaders now to do two things. He says a true leader avoids elevated titles, and he accepts lowly tasks. So if we're going to be real, if we're going to be genuine and authentic it starts with leadership it starts with the leadership and as jesus said look if you're going to be a godly leader in the eyes of god then you're going to avoid elevated titles and you're going to accept lowly tasks because you're not too good to do anything there's no job quote unquote beneath us as pastors uh, if the opportunity presents us. If jesus could wash feet then there's certainly nothing that's too low for me to do okay but, you know, Jesus avoided all the titles and honors that a lot of people wanted to heap on him early in his ministry. And he chose instead to humble himself by eating with sinners, washing feet, touching lepers, and so on. Now, let me just say this. Again, the whole point of this section 
was Jesus encouraging the multitudes, but especially his disciples, which everyone in this room were all disciples of Christ, if you're a Christian. He wanted his disciples to be men that did not see themselves as better than anybody else. He wanted his men to understand that God doesn't want religion from them. He wants a relationship with them. That's what Christianity is. And too many people, you know, think about their relationship with God in terms of religion. Outward trappings, you know. And of course, they, they, they gravitate to churches that are almost cathedral-like in the fact that they've got stained glass windows and, and uh, paintings on the ceiling of angels and God and candles going and all these things because it gives them the illusion that they're in the presence of God. When God dwells in our hearts, right? God doesn't dwell in a building made with hands. Folks, we, this is not the church. We are the church. The church is using this, this building. But this building is not the church. The church is us, and God wants our hearts. He wants a genuine... He doesn't want us to put on an act. Who are we fooling? We fooling God? We're fooling ourselves, aren't we? We come across more pious and holy than we really are. Don't you think God knows that? Don't you think God knows who we really are? I mean, isn't it the classic self-deception to come before God in prayer and, and try to, to butter God up, try to, try to present yourself in a way that makes God think that you're better than you really are? And the Lord is going, are you kidding me? Are you serious? I know who you are. I know every thought you think. Stop playing games. Be honest. Be real, you know? And start with your relationship with me. I just want your heart, you know? I don't want you to carry around a 50-pound Schofield reference Bible because it makes you look holy, you know? <laughs> I don't want you driving a vehicle that's got Jesus stickers from one end to the other. Because look at me, I'm so spiritual. God says, I want, I want your heart. Give me your heart, be real. I know who you are. Hey, I knew who you were before I ever created you. I knew who you were going to be. I knew all the sins you were going to commit even before I called you to be my child. I knew what I was getting myself into. You think you're fooling me? I, you've disappointed me because you haven't lived up to some, some idealized uh, uh, image I had in my mind of who you were going to be? God says, I know you. Come to me. Be real with me. And then be real with each other. You know? Don't make each other think you're more spiritual than you really are. Hey, we're all in this together. We all need each other's prayers and support. We need, we need to pray with each other. Weep with those who weep. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Be of the same mind toward each other. We're all in this together. And we need each other. Which means we need each other to be genuine. So may God help us to understand that, especially as we go into our week of fasting and prayer. Let's pray that God would make us authentic, Christians, that any hypocrisy, any phoniness, any facades that we might be engaged in, we would confess those, repent of it, and just be real. The most spiritual people I have ever met were the most real. The biggest phonies always tried to tell you how spiritual they were, always tried to, to, to have the facade of how holy they were. You know, after a while, you grow up in the Lord a little bit, you can see through that. Folks that I have been so impressed with and felt such a connection to were those who were just real. You know? You go to them, you share your heart, 
They don't stand next to you and condemn you and, well, why aren't you living the way I'm living? They say, hey, I was there. I know what it's like to struggle with alcohol or with drugs or pornography or this or that. I've been there. God gave me victory. Now, let me come alongside you, and I'll pray with you. I'll pray for you that God will give you the victory. Paul said the most spiritual of Galatians 6 verses 1 and 2 are the ones who stoop down and pick a weaker brother or sister up. But that requires genuineness, right? To let them know, look, I could pick you up because I was there at one time. Somebody helped pick me up. And together we can, we can live as God's people if we all pull together. So may God give us grace to apply that and go into prayer next week with that in our, in our minds as we pray that God would make this church what he really wants it to be. Father, we thank you so much for your word. Your word is truth. And we thank you so much, Lord, that you have placed your truth in our hearts. And we have been born again by the Spirit. That doesn't mean that we're better than anybody else. Forgive us, God, if we look down on unbelievers because they walk in sin. We were once there. Who do we think we are to look down on them now because we're so better than they are? Forgive us, Father. Give us grace, Lord, to come across as humble servants, picking people up and showing them the love of Christ. Father, make this church a church that is sincere, that is godly and holy, but not holier than thou and self-righteous. A church full of real people, sinners saved by grace, who understand that. Never forget that. We just praise you, Lord. We ask you to do great things next week through our week of fasting and prayer. And Father, we ask all this now in Jesus' name. Amen.